Welcome back to the Wild Side News. And now, Sydney Wildsmith. Good guys and bad guys. It's the stuff of every great Western. According to our next guest, it's also the foundation of the Westernization process. The difference here is this movie is for real. In a moment, we hear Confessions of an Economic Hitman. What's that got to do with nature and the earth? A hell of a lot more than most people could even imagine. Best-selling author John Perkins, a confessed economic hitman, tells all when we return here on the Wild Side News. Barrett Kohler is a publisher out of San Francisco, which specializes primarily in books about business. They are dedicated to improving the workplace and work they use as their motto, opening up new space. After being rejected by all the major publishers, John Perkins took his manuscript, which he had been quietly writing since the 1980s, to Barrett Kohler. They bought, and now they have a runaway bestseller to their credit. Confessions of an Economic Hitman is now going into multiple printings, and now the major publishers just completed a major bidding war for the paperback rights to Confessions. What's amazing is that all of this success is occurring without the usual fanfare that accompanies any book that soars to the New York Times bestseller list, not to mention 20 other regional bestseller lists. It begs the question, why? John Perkins, the author is delivering a message, actually much more than a message. He is revealing his involvement in what we all sort of sense, that is, that when President Eisenhower warned against the emergence of a military-industrial complex, he was truly giving us a warning. Many of us sense that people in power, real power, global power, the power that comes with the World Bank, the National Security Agency, the Halliburtons and Bechtels, may get caught up in their power and that when powerful people who live a radically privileged life dream dreams of changing the world, they can actually do it with the right plans, investment, political power, and, when necessary, force. Over the past 40 years, efforts have been made to develop the third world. Countries like Ecuador, Guatemala, Iran, Panama, Chile, Saudi Arabia, and without exception, these are the nations that seem to inspire the headlines of poverty, conflict, deforestation, terrorism, which seems to follow development. Now we hear of globalization, which presses giant corporations forward into a unified global network of power. The debate about the future of planet Earth rests so much within this framing of the vision. And to many of us, friends of the Wild Side News, who devote our lives to finding some means, any means, to slow down what appears to be an unstoppable destruction of whole ecosystems and forests and oceans and health, to hear that in almost all cases, such outcomes are the direct intent of the grand global developers in their quest of power and wealth, it is shocking. Good guys, bad guys, here is how our guest, John Perkins, opens his book. Economic hitmen 
PHMs, are highly paid professionals who cheat countries around the globe out of trillions of dollars. They funnel money from the World Bank, the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID, and other foreign aid organizations into the coffers of huge corporations and the pockets of a few wealthy families who control the planet's natural resources. Their tools include fraudulent financial reports, rigged elections, payoffs, extortion, sex, and murder. They play a game as old as empire, but one that has taken on new and terrifying dimensions during this time of globalization. I should know, as I am an EHM. There are many things, detailed questions I wanted to ask John Perkins, but I wanted to ask him about the giant picture as well. And this is a man who has played at the giant level. I cannot stress enough the need for each of you who work for a better, more sustainable world to read this book. It gives us solid ground from which to build a truly better world. So, for the next two segments, we go in-depth with an ex-economic hitman who has put his life on the line to tell this story. John, it's so good to bring your voice to the voice of the earth here on the Wild Side News. Now, some may wonder why your book, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, would be featured on a show about nature. But I feel there's no more important book right now to help us understand the why of our environmental dilemma and the hope for a way back to reality on the earth. Your book is an absolutely fascinating true story, a confession, in which you begin in your prologue driving your Subaru outback into Ecuador's Amazon jungles. You frame the story with that image. Why? See, you know, you asked a, <laughs> a very good question. I, I suppose um, it, Sydney, it really came from my deep connection to Ecuador. And as I wrote the book, uh, you know, I wrote it over, actually wrote it over a period of many years. Um, and, and the final version, of course, I, I wrote uh, last year, but it had been putting together. And so I wanted to bring it up to modern times, which is Ecuador now. I'm very connected to Ecuador now. And that is where my heart and soul have been for many, many years. And, you know, I suppose if, if, uh, we were, if we were Freudian or Jungian, I'm not sure which here, we could sit back and say, I, I've always had a deep sense of guilt. I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Ecuador, and I think I had pretty high uh, expectations of myself at that time. And maybe feel I let myself down a little bit after that, well, maybe a lot after that when I became an economic hitman. And so probably a lot of the work I've been doing with Dream Change uh, over the, uh, that's the nonprofit DreamChange.org. You can find out more about it uh, over the last uh, 15 years. Has had a, a lot to do with that sense of guilt. You ask a very profound question, and I, I don't have a stylistic answer to it, except it did frame the book, and it did bring it up to modern times, and I think it also went deep into some uh, very important part of my psyche, my heart, my emotions. I suppose the reason that I pose that as the initial question is because it, obviously the work that you did so much affected particularly indigenous peoples and their lifestyles and their cultures in many parts of the world. What I'd like my listeners to understand is what it is that you were doing that would have that impact really on, on all these different peoples. But you know, as I was doing it, um, as I get started as an economic hitman, I, I don't really think I thought of it in the context of what it, how it would affect the indigenous peoples um, at all. 
but as time went on, I certainly saw how, how that impacted. And I think uh, the indigenous people have had such a tremendous impact on me, as you know from my other five books, which are all about them. And uh, without their help, without having seen it from their side, I don't think I ever would have had the courage to write this book, and I don't think I ever would have had the heart to write the book, or the hope. The book is written out of a great sense of hope. I, you know, when I wrote this book, I knew I was sticking my neck in a noose. And not suicidal or self-destructive. Uh, so I would only stick my neck in a noose if I, if I had great hope that it was going to accomplish something positive. Uh, and, the, and the indigenous people, with all of their prophecies uh, from so many different cultures, as I talk about in the book, they all prophesy, so many cultures prophesy that we are we entering a time of potential for tremendous transition for human beings to rise to a new level of consciousness and relate to each other and the environment in very different ways. And I have complete hope that we will do that. And I, I realize that that has to start by a t t true recognition of where we've come from and where we stand right now today. And part of that recognition involves recognizing what economic hitmen have done, what we've all done in, in essence to create this empire. So many of the indigenous peoples and the rainforests and, and around the world, um, the natural systems have been impacted from development. And of course, that is very much what your job as an economic hitman was involved in. Now, some people would suggest that it's just sort of the product of greed and, and uh, corporations and unfettered quest for wealth. Your story presents a very different picture, that it isn't just sort of, sort of accidental or inconsequential, but that as a matter of fact, it was willful. And that's a very powerful aspect of this story that leads to your using the term confession. Uh, share with us the nature of that willful uh, effort to impact these people. So it's a, it's a willful impact to create an empire uh, and to become powerful and wealthy. You know, I talk about the corporatocracy. In, in the past 40 years, we've created the first truly global empire in the history of the world, and we've created it primarily without the military through economics. The, another unique aspect of this empire is that it has no emperor, no king. Instead, it, it, it has a corporatocracy. It doesn't really matter who, who's president of the United States, whether he's Democrat or Republican. The corporatocracy is still there and very, very powerful. And so the corporatocracy has set about creating this empire, when, and they have a lot of knights, a lot of soldiers out there doing it for them. I was one of them. So I, I don't think it's definitely, you know, I don't know if you could say it was a willful attempt to destroy indigenous peoples around the world. It was a willful attempt to, uh, in, to create an empire. And in so doing, those indigenous people, many of them have been destroyed, just like with all the other empires. When the Roman Empire was created, they destroyed a lot of indigenous empires. But I think their goal was to create a lot of indigenous people. But I think their goal was to create an empire, not necessarily. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a very fine distinction I'm making here. Well, no, you don't, to be honest and fair, you're absolutely right. They did not, it, your book does not suggest that they had a willful, uh, they were willfully setting out to hurt people. But there was certainly a willful attempt to economically control them, uh, and that meant their resources, their lifestyles, and ultimately bring about change in their countries that perhaps never would have happened if it weren't for their efforts. Um, this is part of what corporatocracy is about. Um, and, of course, the involvement, for example, with the World Bank and major cor American corporations is part of that legacy. And, and it's quite shocking, quite honestly, for a lot of people. A lot of people are going to have a very difficult time 
accepting your story about, in essence, the way in which the World Bank and the NSA and Halliburton and other uh, corporations um, colluded to bring about economic catastrophe in some of these countries. I, I, I agree with you that people probably do have a hard time accepting it, but it's 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 not a it's not a, I'm not I'm not suggesting anything very radical here to be to be honest with you. I'm I'm rather surprised actually at what an amazing reaction has been to this book because the former chief economist of the World Bank and the winner of the Nobel Prize, uh, Joseph Stiglitz, has written about the same sorts of things. And so does Jeffrey Sachs, a very well-known economist. Many, many others have, and, and criticizing the work that the bank and the IMF do and saying very much what I do. The, the difference, that perhaps, is that I tell it as a personal story, and I was a guy down in the trenches. I was out there, you know, kicking, kicking the wheel, so to speak, and, and in a way, my story is probably a bit more romantic than, than theirs because they were running the organization, sitting in offices in Washington. I, I was out there in the trenches dealing with the Claudines and the Paulas and, and all the other things. But I tell it as a personal story. They write their books, uh, for example, Stiglitz's uh, Globalization uh, and its detractors. Um, they write their books much more academically. But they say very much the same thing. So this information about all the deals that we struck, like Saudi Arabia and what happened in Panama and Colombia and elsewhere, that's available through many sources, and I, and I footnote many of those sources in the book. So it really shouldn't come as any surprise to people. I think it does because most of us, most Americans, don't really pay much attention to what's going on in the world or at the World Bank. We need to. One of the reasons I wrote the book you know, is it really important to our children what conviction Scott Peterson got today? And yet we spend a tremendous amount of time on that and Michael Jackson and, and Martha Stewart and, and all these things that really don't have much of an impact on, on the future of the world, if any impact on it. But what we're doing in these other countries has a huge impact and a huge impact on us. People are angry at us around the world because they know that we've been exploiting them. And that's made this world a very unstable and unsafe place for us and for our children. Uh, we're not going to solve that problem. We're not going to make ourselves safer by increasing the number of security guards at airports or on our borders or by sending more troops abroad. We're only going to take care of this problem when we really uh, hark back to our own ideals of creating a world uh, for the people, of the people, and by the people throughout the world rather than one that's for the corporations, of the corporations, and by the corporations. That's what we must do. But, um, you know, the information in my book is, is uh, I don't uncover any, anything that a lot of other people haven't written about in, in different ways. Yeah, this is kind of interesting, the way in which people have responded. Your book is on the bestseller list in 20 different categories, uh, and, and I find that interesting, that I think people are hungry for the truth because there is sort of, from my perspective, there's a disconnect between what we observe in our world out here, even you know in America, and then then what we seem to be hearing from, in particular, our media about what that truth is. And of course, that, as you paint such a, a vivid picture, is part of the enormous problem: is the way in which. And I'm, by the way, I just want to make clear: I am not at all anti-corporate. Not at all. I think I think we're going to work our way out of this through through right corporate corporatocracy, you know, through proper uh, uh, economic empowerment of ourselves and our our visions and our dreams. That is how we must do it. But um, there is at this point in time a rather tight knit collusion at some levels between the media, 
uh, between certain corporations, between certain leaders and politicians, and it's a very difficult thing for us who are looking for a better world uh, to really face up to in effect. It's true. We need to become more educated. You know, I'm struck by the fact that so many Americans have believed that foreign aid is altruistic, when for the most part it is not. It's there to make the, it's been used to make the wealthy of this country wealthier and the wealthy of, of many of these other third world countries wealthier also, and actually more than double the gap between rich and poor in the last 40 years. The statistics show that. Actually, the ratio between the wealthy, the ratio of the wealthy to the poor in the world has gone from 30 to 1 in 1960 to 74 to 1 in the late 1990s. And that's terrible. And so we've created this situation, and most Americans don't don't get it. We don't understand that. Unfortunately, we don't, and unfortunately, most of the rest of the world does. So I just came back from Costa Rica. I was in Brazil earlier this year. I was also in Tibet and Nepal earlier this year. I travel around a lot, and I find all over the world uh, illiterate peasants know what's going on much better than we do. They may not read the papers, but they, they know, they hear their country was just given a huge loan from the World Bank, and they see that big U.S. corporations are there building huge power plants, and, it's, and, and these power plants are going to feed the, the, the wealthy people's industries in their country uh, and the big shopping malls, but they don't benefit at all from this. But they also know that their country is left holding a huge debt. And so instead of paying for health care for them or education for them or other social services for them, a lot of the national budget is going to have to go to pay off that debt. And it makes them very, very angry. These are good, honest people. These are not radicals. These are not socialists or communists or terrorists. But they're very upset with what's going on in the world. And we need to be more like that. We need to understand what's going on in this country. We need to be upset. We need to be skeptical. And I think the appeal of this book, and you're right, I mean, it, it shocked me, Sydney, how, how it's just risen to the top of the charts. And like you said, it's every major newspaper has it on its bestseller list in this country. It has been for a couple of months now, and it's only been out since November. That indicates people really want to know about this. And they're not really interested in reading academic treatises on it. But, uh, they, they, they want to hear the story that's out there from a personal standpoint. And I guess this book has struck a chord with those people. I just hope that people will really listen, and then we'll, we'll educate themselves more, buy some of these other books, buy you know, Joe Stiglitz's book and, and other ones, and really find out what's going on, and talk to their friends and neighbors and family about it. I encourage all readers to read the book. It's a it's a fascinating read. I mean, it's it's a drama. Um, there's suspense. There's intrigue. You even talk about the fact that in in some cases, in certain countries, certain leaders who have tried to stand up to this process of of economic enslavement or entrapment or however you want it, whatever term is appropriate, have paid the ultimate price. Uh, you talk, for example, about Panama. This can go to quite an extreme. Absolutely, yes. Uh, we were always aware as economic hitmen that if we failed, which we didn't too often, that in the background lurked the jackals who are CIA-sanctioned assassins, usually working for private contractors as we did, not directly for the CIA. And uh, But in, in Panama with Omar Torrijos and in Ecuador with Jaime Roldos, we failed. The economic hitmen failed. I failed. And so the jackals came in, and both of those men uh, died in fiery airplane crashes. That uh, There was no doubt in my mind, and in most people's mind, uh, 
that those were, that they were assassinated because uh, they opposed our policies and would not be, be brought around by the economic hitmen. We've also seen that the next step where, where the jackals fail, the economic hitmen and the jackals fail, that's what's happened in Iraq. And on a few times when that happens in the world these days, then and only then does the military go in, and that's exactly what happened in Iraq. We tried to bring Saddam Hussein around, tried to get him to buy into the same model that the Saudis had bought into, but he wouldn't buy in the 80s. And so we tried to assassinate him. His security guards were too good. He had too many doubles. So we sent in the military. But do you think for a moment that the military couldn't have taken Saddam Hussein out in 1991? I mean, we could have taken him out, but we didn't want to. Because he was a strong man, he could keep his country under control, and he was a very good shield against Iran. So our best option was to keep him alive and destroy his military, make him our puppet, basically, like the, Saud, like the House of Saud in Saudi Arabia. We destroyed his military, thought we'd make him our puppet, but he didn't buy then either. The economic hitmen couldn't bring around, and the assassins couldn't get him. And so finally we had to go back in once again, and this time we took him out. You know, a question that I keep trying to resolve for myself is, where is the source of this? In other words, there are there are some certainly some historic roots to this going way back, and you you talk about that uh, very effectively in your book, that uh, the roots of this really come from sort of a uh, an altruistic, at least at some levels, uh, desire to uplift humankind, to bring civilization uh, to the wild lands and 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 the uh, you know the backwoods peoples. Give us a little sense of perhaps how that has morphed through time and try to bring it into the, the current era because something has gone terribly wrong. Well, yeah. You know, I think, I think the, you know, the roots you talk about are, are there. There's no question. But from, 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 from almost a more immediate standpoint, at the end of World War II, uh, we were uh, very scared people and very anxious. We'd gone through World War I, our, our, our fathers and grandfathers, at least my father and grandfather, World War One, the Depression, and then World War Two. So it, as World War Two is winding down, we create the World Bank, IMF, and, the, uh, and, and their sister organization as a way to uh, rebuild a devastated world, a devastated Europe and devastated Asia. And in fact, they did a pretty good job, but they immediately became politicized because at the same time, a new enemy was emerging, the Soviet Union, and it had nuclear weapons. It was very frightening to us. So... We used the World Bank and the sister organizations not only to rebuild devastated parts of the world, but to prove that capitalism was better than the, than the Soviet alternative. And, and that uh, resulted in a very cozy relationship between these big banks and the capitalist organizations, the corporations. And again, it sort of started innocently enough, but over time, this cozy relationship became stronger and stronger Eventually, we reached detente, the Soviet Union dissolved. Then the relationship became purely one of building this empire. But from the very beginning, it was part of that. It was to show that our way was better than their way, and in that process, to basically build up a capitalistic empire around the world. And the United States became the logical leader of that empire. We're not the only ones involved, but we're like the coach and the captain. You know, out of the 100 largest economies in the world, 51 are corporations, not countries, corporations. And 47 of those are U.S. corporations. So we're very much the leader in that process, which began, I think, quite innocently. It helps to know the whys of the wastage of wonder. When we return, we continue and then look to ways to turn this around, if we can. This is the Voice of the Earth, the Wild Side News. 
the truth shall set us free. Welcome back to the Wild Side News. And now, Sydney Wildsmith. Why this war between the powerful and the rest of humanity? Do we have to just go on accepting the destruction of the living systems in order to maintain a living economy? Will the people of the world continue to just see their lives torn up? Are we kidding ourselves that they don't understand the game? Is good old American democracy undercut by the corporatocracy? We explore ways to think our way into the world we want. We now continue our discussion with best-selling author John Perkins about his role as an economic hitman. Of course, it has led to um, around the world in order to, to support the corporations and then also the consumerist societies that we benefit from. I mean, I, we, we live in an age of miracles. I am I'm never going to, to deny that. I love all of my toys, uh, and we're extremely lucky. Uh, uh, competition and capitalism uh, has led to a miraculous world. But unfortunately, the world is limited, and the resources as well are limited. And part of your story tells the story of how the corporations, in order to make sure that they have access to those resources, are involved in uh, various forms of economic entrapment so that those resources become available to feed uh, or support uh, this corporatocracy. But let's look on into the future because now we also, as, as the strange irony is that um, as development really reaches out into the farther realms, the the desire and the demand for uh, consumerist items is going to put even great, much greater uh, stress on the living systems. How are these people facing that future? Well, look, Sydney, I think we I think we know two things, two very important things right now. We know from history that empires never last; they collapse and they collapse violently. And this one will, too. There's no question about it. Um, and we also know that we've created, we've done an experiment since, basically since, let's say, World War II, although it began earlier. Um, and that experiment really hasn't worked. So today we find ourselves, you and I, living in a country that has about 5% of the world's population, consumes about 25% of the resources, and creates close to 30% of the Serious, serious pollution on the planet. That's not a replicable uh, model. When we talk about taking this out to the world, you know, letting China become like us and India, you can't do that. You can't go, you know, 5% of the world's people using 25% of the resources you know, and creating 30% of the pollution. You can't, you, you can't spread that model. It doesn't work. It's a failed experiment. And Yes, we may be the wealthiest people in the history of the world. We may have all the toys that you mentioned, but we're not a very happy people. If you look at our social statistics around suicide and drug abuse and divorce and incarceration and murder, um, they're pretty bad. All our wealth hasn't really created a happy society here. So we know these two things. We've created a, a non-replicable model and probably one we really wouldn't want to replicate anyway and one that can't continue. And we, we've created an empire, and empires never last. So I think what we know is that in the next 30 years or so, something's going to collapse here, and it's going to collapse drastically and violently. 
the alternative is to change it now. And perhaps the good news is that this empire and this, this model has been created by a very compassionate people. Uh, I'd like to think of it that way. And the people who have a philosophy of life that really reflects the philosophies of people from all over the world. After all, our population comes from all over the world. The ideas expressed in our Declaration of Independence and our Constitution came from philosophers all over the world. And our very government system came from the indigenous people of North America. They were the model. So we have a global model here, and it's time to take it back out to the world. It's time to really show our compassion and to say to the world, look, we want life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for everyone around the world. And a government of the people, for the people, by the people, not of the corporation, for the corporation, and by the corporation. This is what we want to take out to the world. Let the world have it. And the first step in doing that, actually, is just reining in this corporatocracy and saying, stop exploiting these people. I think we're poised at a time now, and all the indigenous cultures tell us that we've reached this time in history with a tremendous potential for change. So we are here at this unique time. You and I are very fortunate to be alive here and able to speak out on this because we're at this time where amazing changes can happen. We have all the resources, the financial resources, the creativity resources, the mental resources available to us to really create a new paradigm unlike anything the world's ever seen before. And I, I, I think we need to do that. If we don't do it, we're going to collapse. Well, power is rarely ever given away. And those in power right now, what you refer to as the corporatocracy and perhaps on even on a larger scale, the globalizing forces, which actually extend very far, they kind of see this, this um, vision as, as sort of a threat, which certainly it's not from our perspective. How do we begin to create a truce? Well, the, the, the real threat is not to do anything. The, the real weapons of mass destruction out there today are environmental catastrophe and, uh, and, and extreme poverty around the world. Those are real weapons of mass destruction. And I think we, we really need to recognize that. Uh, I, I agree with you that the, that the change is not going to come from the top. It's going to come from us, and it always has. The American Revolution came uh, you know, from, from the people. It was a revolution of the people. There had to be certain leaders that started it. That the guys like Tom Paine that wrote about it, and and George Washington who said, "Well, I'll form a military." And all of those men, incidentally, were terrorists. Um, they were traitors to their own government, the King of England, and they stuck their heads in nooses. If we'd lost the revolution, they all would have been hanged. It's it's really time that we get together and do that today. And there's a lot of people sitting on top of corporations and a lot of wealthy people. George Soros, for example, is one example who are saying very similar things, uh, like George Washington. It's, it's, this is not just about the you know, rebellion of the poor or the middle class. Um, every, every major executive that I know is worried about the future for his kids. So I, but I think we all really need to speak out. And when we speak out and when we join civil movements and social movements, things change. Things happen. A hundred years ago, women couldn't vote in this country. Thirty years ago, blacks couldn't ride on the same buses as whites in many parts of the South. Um, you know, 20 years ago, the bald eagle was practically extinct. We, we create tremendous changes when we set our minds to it. This is a change that we've not tried to create before. We're saying we need to change the way society looks at itself and the world around it and the, and the way we view economics. We've not tried to do that before. We need now to set our minds on this task and make it happen, as we have done in so many other areas 
throughout the past centuries. I think it's obvious from your experience and, and many other folks' experience that to try to take on this type of power is very often, it can be literally dangerous, it can be very ineffective, and, and I don't know that fighting it makes any sense whatsoever. So that's where you in particular and, and many, of, many folks like myself are working to really just change the way we look at the whole thing, to kind of pull ourselves back from this, what we imagine to be the reality, and to, and to start to recraft a new reality. That's really how we, how we get around this. That's what happened with, um, with the creation of the United States, America, for example, is, is just a whole new way of thinking. And that certainly is where uh, your work today, your shape-shifting concepts um, are, are moving forward. Let's, let's explore that a bit. Give, a, give us some ideas. First of all, tell us about shape-shifting and some of the other projects that you're working in. Well, shape-shifting really is about transformation. And it's a term that's used by, by shamans and indigenous cultures who I spent a lot of time working with and, and writing other books about. Um, and it's really about transformation of, of many different kinds. So really what we're looking for here is a shape-shift. I mean, I think my new book, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, is as much about shape-shifting as any of the shamanic books, and it's, but it's looking at the things I've talked about here where we really need to shape-shift our attitudes toward the world and the environment. And uh, the, the concept of shape-shifting says that basically the title of another book of mine, The World is As You Dream It, that when we have a vision of something that we want in life as individuals or as a society, and we put our intent on making that vision happen, and we give it energy in many different forms, it happens. And we've seen this happen. The indigenous people tell us this. They look at what we've created here in the United States and say, you know, you guys had a dream of material success, big buildings and heavy industry and lots of cars, and you gave it energy. You made it happen. It's now happened. But now you're realizing that it's time to change that. It's not bringing you any longer. Maybe it did once, but it's not any longer bringing you what you need. And, in fact, it's, it's turning destructive. It's turning in on itself. It's eating itself, the system. So you need to change your dream and give the new dream energy. And that's really what shape-shifting is about, and it holds out great hope. I mean, I think we all know that if, if we all get together on this and we decide we want to create a new way of living and of envisioning ourselves and our relationship to the rest of the world, then we'll do it, and we'll give it that energy. John, give us some of your visions. Uh, you've, you really spent a lot of time thinking about this. This is your job. This is your mission. This is your passion. <laughs> You're a very fortunate person to be able to to really focus on that. So, share some those some of those visions that uh, have come to you. Because you know what, we need to just plain put them out there and share them. Yes, yeah, I, I do feel very blessed to be in this position, frankly, and, and to be alive at this point in history, which I think is very critical. And everybody listening uh, came in at this time in history uh, for a reason, and we are at a very special time in history, and it's time to move this thing forward. Well, I think, you know, what we have today is a world that's very small, really. The tentacles of the corporatocracy reaches all over the planet and sucks it dry of its resources. One of my visions is to change the flow there. Let's reach out, let's use these same tentacles, these same networks we've created through our corporations and the World Bank and other organizations to reach out and send compassion out to the world and to send real techniques out to help starving people feed themselves. 24,000 people die every single day from lack of nourishment. 30,000 children die every single day from curable diseases because they don't get medicine. We can change that. 
and we need to. I'm not opposed to foreign aid at all uh, when it's used altruistically, and it can be. It can be done to really help the poorest of the poor pull themselves up by their bootstraps. We did this in a couple of programs that I worked in as an economic aid, and we did it in Panama, for example. And I know it works. So my vision is to, uh, at the very large vision, is to you know, reverse these tentacles, to send out compassion, and and to set an example for the world and to create an atmosphere in the world where everybody can have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I believe we're right on the verge of that happening. You know, when the tsunami struck, Coca-Cola got right in there immediately and sent millions of bottles of water to those devastated areas. What if we all insisted, we who buy from from Nike Coca-Cola and McDonald's, that those organizations make sure that nobody in the world goes without clothes, food, or water. Those three organizations, and if, if they committed to that, then their competitors would have to go along with it, and they could make that happen. Wouldn't that be novel and beautiful and wonderful? And in the long run, the best thing for the survival of those organizations, too. Corporations should not be about paying executives huge salaries. The average right now is 475 times the average employee in those corporations. That's ridiculous. They should not be about giving investors windfall profits. Corporations should be about making a good life for their employers, excuse me, employees, and for their customers and their suppliers. That's a beautiful beginning. It certainly is. And one of the questions I'd love to ask you is, what is the economic fix? How do we economically, because, you know, one of the aspects of your book, of course, is the fact that you let us know that we're kind of caught in this, this sense of reality of what America is about, very much created as a part of the media that serves the consumerist world. How do we challenge that media? How do we find a means to get this message out in an effective way when the media is so centralized? Well, you're doing it, aren't you? Yes, I am. <laughs> and one of the things that's amazed me in the past, uh, let's see, my book came out in November, early November, so however long it's been, um, one of the things that's amazed me is it's been on the bestseller list of all the major newspapers in the country, all the major media, and not one of them, of the major ones, has reviewed it or written an article about it. And yet, it continues to be a bestseller. And every single day, I talk to five, seven, ten radio stations like I'm talking to you now. And they're getting through to millions and millions of people. I think the mainstream media the big networks that are owned by the big corporations and depend on the big corporations to, you know, for their advertising, who won't touch these kinds of topics, have basically become entertainment. You watch the morning shows in the morning, CBS, ABC, NBC, I don't care which one, they're just entertainment. They never go into depth. You know, if somebody's on, they're only on for a couple of minutes. You and I are talking for, what, half an hour or something? We're talking pretty in-depth here. Um, they become entertainment. But there's another whole segment of the media that's out there, like you, Sydney, who are really delving. And there's a lot of you. And you're getting through to a lot of people. And there's the Internet, which gets through to tremendous numbers of people. I, my publisher just put a blog up on, on, on my book, and my God, the hits we're getting on it. So we're getting through. I think the whole media system is totally changed in this country. And most of us don't even really realize it yet, although we may be part of it. But very soon, that's going to become very apparent to everyone. I believe it's critical, and that's what the Wild Side News is about, that we literally create our own media. 
we just plain do, create our own, along with the, the ideas and the visions and as well the alternative energy systems and the products that will help sustainability. We need to unite that all into a, a unified media because there's so many people like, like we're talking about here who are hungry who want this message, who want this truth, who are happy to become part of this emerging a better future. And uh, I'm very hopeful. I actually am very hopeful. I believe that um, uh, some of the old systems uh, are old systems now and that there's whole new systems that are, are achieving uh, expediency and credibility and reality uh, and uh, are going to uh, unify in, in, a, in a vision that begins to work. And then the other trick, and maybe you can help us out here, how do we economically empower this new vision? Well, I'm not, not so worried about the economics. It's been my experience that when we have a strong vision, everything else follows. I mean, that sounds simplistic, but it's really been my experience. I created a, an alternative energy company the same way. Um, getting this book out, which, in, it, you know, every major publisher in the, in, the, in the country turned my book down. And a very bold, small publisher from, from San Francisco, Barrett Kohler, published it. And now they're doing really, really well with it. And it, we, we just sold the paperback rights, and, and, to, and, and, and all the major publishers were stumbling over themselves to get it. Um, Congratulations. Well, well, thanks. But the point being that... You know, I wrote the book because I believed in it, because I knew it had to be written, and everything else fell into place. I, I really think that that happens, Sydney. So I think when we have the vision of what it is we want, the economics will come. They will fall into place. The right people will step forward at the right time. You know, you can only go forward with this whole process if you have a certain amount of faith that, that the right thing will happen at the right time. And I have absolute faith in that. I think we've come to this position that we're in. Uh, for 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 very good reasons, and we're going to move forward for very good reasons. And I really believe that what you know, part of shape shifting is when you give it the energy, then then things begin to fall into place. And it's certainly been my experience. I'm 60 years old, and I can say that's been my experience throughout life. The only times I've had trouble is when I've kind of fought the system, when I haven't believed in that, when I focused on the small parts, I focused on the financing of something rather than. The, the something itself, and that's always a mistake. I, 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 I finance big alternative energy plants, and what I learned from the very beginning, you don't go after the financing, you go after the plant. You, you, you envision the plant, and you put together all the things that need to go into that plant. You come up with a really good program, and then the financing comes into place. I believe the dream is actually beginning to uh, uh, develop critical mass, and, and that's what we need. And I totally agree with virtually everything. We haven't even really talked about the nature of your book in a sense. We haven't. So I encourage everybody to go out there because it is a terrific read. And uh, the types of things that we've talked about uh, deal with some of the essence, but actually the nuts and bolts are an, an amazing story. John, when people want to find out more specifically about you and your mission and, and how you work and perhaps participate in some of the work that you're doing, uh, what's the best way for them to do so? Uh, go to my website, johnperkins.org, and the website of the nonprofit I created and chair, which is dreamchange.org. And there's a new website coming up, which is called... Uh, economichitman.com that my publisher just put together. I just saw it today. It's amazing, but I don't think it's actually up yet. I think I have a sneak preview. So, so go to johnperkins.org and dreamchange.org. Oh, and I'd also like to just add to sure. that I'm traveling a lot and speaking, and, and you know when I go to speak, I'd love to get questions from people. So if people have questions for me, look at those websites. They both have my schedule. Come join me and ask questions. 
Fabulous. You know, that's actually a question I was going to ask you. I'm just curious, if because you, it's amazing how, how much we learn when you write a book like this, and, and then you go out and you put it out to the public, and they come back with their questions. Oh. Has there been a question that just has set you back and, and said, boy, I can launch with that? Uh, there's been a whole lot of questions and comments that have really inspired me to move forward with more and, and, and perhaps write another book and, and continue on this process. And it's been particularly encouraging for me to, to do college campuses. And whenever I did give a, give a talk at a college campus to several hundred or thousand people, whatever, whatever, before that I try to have dinner and, and or lunch with smaller groups of students and, and, and hear their story. And I say, I'm going to tell mine in a, you know, in a couple of hours, you'll hear that. Now I want to hear yours. Let's go around the table. Um, and incredible things. And I can't really say there's been one question, but, but what I'm, I'm hearing is tremendous optimism, uh, discouragement over what we've done in the past, a, a great need to know about that and to understand it and put it behind us and move forward. Uh, with the future. The youth is the future. Uh, the old guard will pass away. That's a truth, too. <laughs> We're and on our way out. That's right. So um, that that is the future, and that's that's very hopeful. John, any idea where you're going to be in the future? Let's say in the next month ahead, where might people be able to... Uh, well, I'm going to be in... Uh, I'm, I'm on my way to Texas this weekend, and then I, I go to California and Colorado and New York and New England. I'm, going, I'm all over. Just go to johnperkins.org or dreamchange.org, and it's all on those two sites. John Perkins, I'm honored to have you on. Uh, you're a warrior. You're a courageous man. Uh, I wish you health, and you already have your wealth, and that's fabulous. And I also keep this microphone open to you anytime uh, on the Voice of the Earth to share your voice and your wisdom. Thank you, John Perkins, for joining us. You're welcome, Sydney, and I want to thank you because what you're doing is what's really uh, protecting democracy, and, and I deeply appreciate a program like yours and protecting the environment. Thank you, John. Thank you. Our discussion today was about history, outcomes, and consequences. But I assure you, the book is filled with details and names and dates, and the truth that binds it all together. Get Perkins' book, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, published by Barrett Kohler. And then, as they say in the craft, do the necessary. You have a need to know the truth. Until next time. This is Sidney Wildsmith saying adios until we meet again and share the voice of the earth here on the Wild Side News.